Welcome. My guest this week is a well-informed critic of Bitcoin and blockchain. He collects information about crypto scams and scandals and distributes it in books, on his email list and on his website. You might think that CoinGeek wouldn't have much in common with his worldview, but in fact most of it is shared. He's merciless about the pseudo-technical jargon and meaningless promises behind ICOs, DeFi and other crypto jiggery-pokery. And he can be almost as angry about Silicon Valley as Craig Wright. So I'd like to give a very warm welcome to David Gerrard. Hi, David. Hello. Thanks very much for doing this. You're listening to CoinGeek Conversations with Charles Miller. Well, we'll probably get onto your views about Bitcoin and blockchain generally later, but I'd like to start off by asking you about your book about the Facebook Libra project, which I very much enjoyed reading. It's called Libra Shrugged. Um, Facebook has not helped because it keeps on changing its names for these things, doesn't it? (laughs) Obviously, that was just to get at me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, just update us on where we are with all the naming for those who haven't been following. Right. So Libra was announced in June 2019. So there was going to be Libra, the project, which would be the um, blockchain and the token running on it. And there was going to be Facebook's Calibra wallet, which would interface to this blockchain and be a nice publicly usable sort of um, crypto wallet just for consumer use. Um, since then, they changed the name from Calibra to Novi. And so that unit of Facebook, the blockchain unit is now called Novi. Uh, they still do most of the development work. They supply staff to the association, and it's very much a Facebook project still. Um, amongst the 27 equal members, they're basically the elephant and 26 mice. Right, yeah. And when an elephant, if 26 mice are in bed with an elephant and the elephant wants to roll over, the mice probably won't have a lot to say about it. Those are the other big companies that Facebook has persuaded to sign up to the project. Yes, and increasingly smaller companies as time goes on. Right. Um, and, and we've also got DM. Yes, they just changed the name um, the end at the beginning of December, in fact. Um, I'm not going to change the book name, no. <laughs> but um, they basically thought, well, the name Libra is associated with that old project. We're a new project now. Um, so this is their new, their original plan was to have run a currency basket based token on a sort of permission blockchain. I mean, fine, you know, um, they then went after speaking to regulators around the world who were all horrified by this plan and were saying within hours, no, you can't do this. They, um, now have floated the plan of doing a blockchain that runs a bunch of, currency substitute tokens, a dollar token, a pound token, a euro token. They're going to start with just the dollar for the moment. Um, This plan isn't going down well either because the real problem is the big objection regulators had is that this is is the sheer scale of it. You know, Um, a lot of the Libra promises, um, the original ones were very, they were actually taken from Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and ICO promises because Libra was founded by four Bitcoiners. 
promises, uh, you're you're talking about things like banking the unbanked, that uh, classic that sort promise. Of thing. <laughs> a lot of normal people who who don't know crypto looked at the Libra white paper. They went, I don't understand what this is. But anyone who'd been around cryptocurrency would recognize most of it as being pretty standard white paper claims. Well, one of the <laughs> one of the interesting things in your book is that I, I think that uh, a lot of people when Facebook puts something forward, are suspicious. They think there yes. may be more to it than that. But you go beyond that. You agree with that. But you also say that Facebook itself didn't really know what it was getting itself into and was totally unprepared for the, the negative uh, backlash to yeah. its proposals. It was amazing. It was like the other big problem that regulators had with the Libra proposal uh, was the backing reserve would be on the order of a trillion dollars. It turns out that's quite a lot of money. So what we're talking about is not just a trillion dollars of assets of any sort. We're talking about a trillion dollars of cash and cash equivalents. Now, that's a very particular kind of asset. Let's just go through this a bit slowly for people who haven't been following it, because it is quite a complicated idea that they had. So, So basically, you've got these Libra tokens that would are, are sort of relatively familiar. They'll be passed between users and so on. They're Facebook users, that is. But then there's this whole uh, fund that sits there on the side yeah. as backing. But it's not just backing because you can buy into it and it has to invest in other things. It's not just sitting there so that you can convert back. That That's what surprised me reading your book. It was It was one of those ideas... There are some cryptocurrency people who basically haven't done the reading about economics, right? Or they repudiate mainstream economics because that's all some bunch of Keynesians they hate. Um, But I think that this is one of the big Silicon Valley problems. These are very smart people, and they think they're so smart that they can work out everything first principles, and they don't have to actually, like, read up on the area or know anything about it. So they were going to come up with this huge reserve, right? They were going to back it with cash and cash equivalent investments, U.S. treasuries, um, that sort of thing. Very, very, very stable things that pay zero or low interest, but are extremely convertible quickly and are really, really solid. The trouble is that what they did was we had the 2008 financial crisis, and a lot of that was caused by money market funds um, being basically running as what were called shadow banks. The term shadow bank was coined in the financial crisis. Um, So they basically invested in cash and cash equivalents so heavily that they drained the supply of these things. So the market provided. It created new, super stable investments that were totally backed by highly rated investments like collateralized mortgages and stuff like that. This turned out to be a bad idea, as everyone knows. When the mortgages went bad, these super stable investments turned out to be built on sand. These collapsed. The money market funds investments collapsed. This led to people suddenly not having backing for all sorts of things they thought they had backing for. No one would extend credit anymore. That was the disaster. That's what was called the credit crunch. And eventually, the Federal Reserve had to come in and bail out the money market funds. So 
um, regulators around the world are frightened of one thing, and that's another 2008 happening. And Facebook came along and presented them with a plan for here's how we could do a 2008 all by ourselves. Just, I mean, this is probably a stupid question, but why, if I buy a Libra token for a dollar, I have to pay a dollar for it. Why yep. couldn't Facebook just keep that dollar and wait for me or somebody else to want it back when they want to convert their Libra back into dollars? I don't see why there was this need for this sort of complicated fund. There isn't really. Um, the idea was needlessly elaborate. I mean, when they were talking about this, when rumours started coming out about this in early 2019, like a whole bunch of people like people like me were called up by the press going, but what is this thing? We don't understand it. And I didn't understand it either. Why would Facebook do a cryptocurrency? Why would they use a blockchain? That doesn't make any sense. You know, if it's permissionless blockchain, a company wouldn't create that unless they were making money from mining or something like that. Um, and crypt permissionless cryptos have problems with volatility that not really suitable for consumers. Um, but if it's a permissioned blockchain, that's another term for a slow distributed data store. They're a company. They run it. They could just use a database. So I thought, no, they can't possibly be doing that. They must be doing PayPal, but they're doing it as Facebook. You know, that's a comprehensible idea. Mm -hmm. A money transmitter, that's useful. That's obviously useful. You could do that. It might serve a need. Um, and it's well understood. It's well regulated. You know, they know how to do this sort of thing. But then they did this thing with a blockchain on the back of it. And I, nothing about the plan needs a sort of blockchain on the back of it. Right. That's a, that's a, I mean, that's a different um, thing that isn't necessary in addition to the, uh, the fund, really, isn't it? So, yeah. So the second, the second question is, what, what's this got to do with, with blockchain? Because you could just um, re record how much money X owes to Y, put it in the database, and then spit it out at the other end. Yes. I mean, the reason why they use the blockchain is because they started out wanting to do something with blockchain. They, Morgan Bella, who created the project, went to her bosses and said, I want to do blockchain. What could we do with a blockchain for 2 billion people? Their user base. Right. And the thing they thought of was, let's start our own currency. What actually has surprised me recently is that they've actually got a test net up and running. I mean, this thing is rolling ahead, isn't it? The test net is bizarre. It's like there was an article. Um, I haven't looked into the tested the numbers myself. This is based on there was an article on Bitcoin.com on the BCH news site. They um, basically they looked at the test net data and they saw nothing on it that ran over 24 transactions a second. So, yeah, 24 transactions a second for a permission blockchain is like, what are you even doing in there? Right. But what does that tell us about how the idea is going to be rolled out? What will it actually consist of? I don't know. Um, so it's probably not as dire as that because... The idea is that you have the DM Association, which has members. Only DM Association members are allowed onto the blockchain, right? It's a closed permission blockchain. So 
This is because regulators would not allow them to open it to just anyone with a self who hosts their own coin. So you're not going to be able to do that on DM. So the only DM association member that has done a wallet yet is Facebook's Novi. So if they have people buying and selling Libra tokens on Novi, then they'll obviously that'll be like the layer two on the system. You know, they'll do most of the work will be done inside Novi, and then Novi will reconcile to the to the DM blockchain as they need to. That's the sort of setup they've effectively described. So that would manage in terms of speed and so on. Like that's just the technical side. This is assuming that regulators even let this happen. Right, because they, they need to get various licenses, uh, including in New York, I think you mentioned there's a potential blockage oh, yeah. there. Novi has applied. I don't think they've got it yet. Novi has money transmitter licenses in all 50 states because that's a thing that you do, and Facebook's had those sort of licenses before. You know, they've done a bit of money transmission stuff. They know how it works. Because they, so they had their own sort of, what was it called, uh, Facebook Pay or something. They've still got that. Credits. No one uses. Yeah. They've got it. I oh, know they had credits. That was ages ago. The current one is Facebook Pay, right. which used to be Messenger Pay. It's basically a front end to your bank account, except it's inside Facebook Messenger. Some people use it. Not very many people use it. But do you, so, just going back to the sort of big picture here, do you think that um, regulators, or at least po politicians, perhaps in the states under a, a Biden administration? might potentially look more favorably on this idea um, in relation to the development of uh, digital currency by in China. But that it's been put forward by Facebook that, you know, the, the states needs to keep up with all these things and this is, we're doing our bit. Do you think that's going to cut more ice under Biden than it did under Trump? I don't know. I don't think it will. Um, so the thing is that like we're in the UK, we have fast British pound payments, you know, using a card. It's a centralized system, but it works really well and everyone uses it. You know, it's a successful system. More, more transactions for more value are made on cards than in physical cash since 2017. US banking is a bit backwards in a lot of ways. It's a very old clunky system with way too many moving parts and too many different administrations different jurisdictions with different rules. That's been a lot of the barrier in updating retail banking in the US. Um, the Federal Reserve is putting in their um, system FedNow, which will be like faster payments in the UK. You know, all the banks interlink and they can send transactions instantly to each other. Um, I mean, this is, the point is that Libra is proposing whole new bunch of technologies to solve problems that have been solved elsewhere without a whole bunch of new technologies. Like I quoted it in the book, I don't have a copy to hand, but they're talking about with Libra, you'll be able to do amazing things like buy your coffee with us, swipe of your phone, or travel on public transit without needing cash. You know, I've had that for 10 years. <laughs> right. I'm going, wow, I must live in the future. It's always a cup of coffee, isn't it? Um, well, it's an excellent test case, you know. <laughs> like, Although will your coffee shop eat the cost of 25p for you using a card? Observably, they will. I mean, um, sort of nine months or whatever it is of lockdown has, has not uh, 
inspired anyone to come up with a better metaphor than going out to buy a cup of coffee, which most of us haven't done for months, actually. Um, yeah, it's my entire life has been on a computer, right. shuffling computer money around from computer to computer. Um, well, well, actually, I was going to I was going to ask you a bit about, a, a bit about how how you, all this works for you because all your activity in this area is sort of on the side. You have an actual job that is completely different, as I understand. Is that right? Yes, I'm a system administrator by day, um, just a Linux system admin. Um, my job is completely a generic. I'm a, I'm an overpaid computer toucher. So so all your activity around cryptocurrency and um, all the sort of negative things you have to say about it are done out of, for your own pleasure and enjoyment, right? I get money for it too. Not so much in 2020. Um, but um, yeah, it turned out to be like half a job. Right. And that's, that's good. You know, I wrote a book and suddenly it was popular and people were interested in what I had to say and then they gave me money for saying it. So... I mean, if I worked out how much I was being paid per hour, I wouldn't be doing it because I'm doing it because it's interesting as well. Like, basically, I see it as a subspecies of finance journalism. You know, journalism about a particular class of financial instruments. You're equally interested in the technology as, as the finance, I think, though. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's your background, I guess. It's interesting to be able to look at the technology and a lot of people who are forwarding shonky crypto-related schemes do a lot of technological hand-waving, saying, oh, it does it by this vast array of jargon words. Don't worry about any of that stuff. Just keep doing the things and give me your money. So at that point, it's useful to be able to look at the technology and say, yeah, actually, that's not so great. It's this thing and this thing, and it works like this thing. You know. And presumably there is an audience out there uh, of people who are interested enough in crypto um, to, to read your work, but also very sceptical about it. It's an interesting area. I mean, it's fascinating. There's a, there's a lot of really good dumb crook stories, you know. Um, when Bitcoin came along, it attracted a lot of idealists, but it also attracted a lot of scammers to prey upon the idealists. Like some of the early Bitcoin scammers, you would see that there were things like they had histories of mail fraud or whatever, you know. Um, basically, they were old crooks with a new, who'd found a new scam. Um, so that sort of thing is a real problem. Um, I mean, there are various things in the design of Bitcoin and later cryptos that made this happen, like irreversibility. That's the design parameter, but it also leads to obvious problems, like any frauds, hacks, or fat finger fumbles are irreversible. If I pick your pocket from the other side of the world, those are my coins now. That one's a very interesting case because here's that's a, an example of a feature which is touted by the supporters of crypto as being one of its great strengths and by you as being one of its great weaknesses. Um, any feature is a bug if you do it hard enough. <laughs> so, um, But I, it, it is part of the design parameters of Bitcoin that transactions would be irreversible. However, that means for consumers that it's a real problem as cash because consumers love reversibility. Like the touch cards that I've spoken of in the UK that were so popular, 
banks couldn't get people to adopt those until they had really strong reversibility. I mean, you can to this day you can repudiate almost any touch card transaction you want. Um, most people don't because they still want to go to that shop again. But you know, but I mean, the argument on the other side of that is that that's why banks have to charge so much, and that perhaps people would accept uh, irreversibility in return for much more efficient transactions. I think that's a hypothetical that flies in the face of how people actually behave. Consumer confidence is greatly increased by reversibility, by the fact of customer service. With it, if you have pervasive irreversibility, no customer service is possible. There's no one who can go in and fix. There's no manager who can go in and fix the problem for you. Now, some people are happy to live that way, but I think most people are not. They want to know that there's someone backing them. It's like the argument for regulation. There's regula regulations on who's allowed to invest in certain things, right? Retail investors aren't allowed to buy certain products at all. And you can argue, well, it's their money. They should be allowed to. Why should only the rich allowed to get rich? And that's a good point. But on the other hand, when you open this stuff up, mum and dad investors get skinned and you get grannies on television saying how the nice man took their retirement savings and disappeared with them. And that's poison. Well, I don't know how much you've looked into Bitcoin SV, but the thinking behind it is very much in favour of regulation. And mm. going down the this convention... Is a point. Yeah, that, going down the... And one of the things I wanted to ask you about is that you say uh, in the book that existing decentralised cryptocurrencies completely fail to scale up to more than toy proof-of-concept transaction rates. Well, I don't think that is true of Bitcoin SV. In fact... Uh, its transactions have peaked at uh, 6,400 a second in April. Sure. So, I mean, what is your, what's your rating of that? Um, I would say in that case that that's good, but it hasn't had serious real-world stress testing because Bitcoin SV has very little uptake. In the place of the crypto world, it's functionally a minor altcoin. Now, it aspires to much more than that, but at the moment, that's... The position it holds. You can say that something theoretically has certain characteristics and looks good on a small scale, but you have to work out that you have to see what it looks like when it's adopted by the world. Right. But I mean, part of the thinking behind Bitcoin SV is that it won't be simply um, buying and selling. There will be data uploaded uh, to the blockchain, um, and there are various uh, businesses, small businesses, admittedly, but uploading quite large numbers of uh, bits of data per second, and that that may be the way forward, rather than a, a, a very large number of financial, small financial transactions. What do you make of that sort of possibility? Um, you can say a lot of things could work out in certain ways. I would say. Show me the system in practice being used by people at scale, and we'll see how it goes. Um, it has, it, it it can offer a lot of possibilities, but then you have to answer questions like, why aren't people using it then? Right. Well, I think it, I think the answer to that would be, well, they they're not yet because the businesses are not fully developed, they're startups, and you know, let's see what happens. And that's fine. You know, it sounds like you have got a, a relatively open mind to the evidence uh, that might be presented um, in, in this. I'm, I'm wondering whether since you started your whole 
Bitcoin investigations, there have been moments where you thought, well, hang on, maybe I'm on the wrong side of this argument. Maybe this thing is going to succeed in the end. Have you have you ever had that? Um, so the popular line of Bitcoin BTC has failed hard at the original white paper aspiration of being peer-to-peer digital cash. For exa- it, it, like, it clearly just doesn't work as that. Yeah, I think all Bitcoin SV supporters would be completely agree- in agreement with that. Sure. It's become just like a speculative commodity and um, people watch the number go up and say, see, that proves we're right. No, it just proves that the number's gone up. Um, so the thing is that I'd be happy to be shown wrong, but I'd have to be shown wrong. Um, present me the thing working without and standing up to investigation and I might say, yeah, that looks okay, actually. It was something. Because um, the thing about cryptocurrency and blockchain world is There is no shortage of claims. There are claims about all manner of things, and it'll definitely be great in six months or 18 months or whatever. And very little of this checks out as promised. Um, Looking ahead five years or 10 years, do you think that it's more likely that you're going to give up your work in exposing scams and scandals or that the whole ecosystem that you're reporting on will evaporate? That's a good question. If I could write about something else, um, I probably might. (laughs) (laughs) As long as people like money, people will be trying to take their money, and we're going to have endless financial shenanigans to write about. So I don't expect to run out of material just writing on the subject of finance, even if it's not even specifically on crypto. You know, to some extent, the Libra book's trying to get out of that stuff because it's not really a story about cryptocurrency at all. It's a story about Silicon Valley hubris and people who think they can start their own money and um, take over the world that way. Um, Arrogant venture capitalism and people who think that they can take advantage of a system without ever being called out on it. For the future of crypto itself, and cryptocurrencies in general I'm speaking of here, I think the future is increasing regulation as part of the system. I think we can see this coming already. Um, the anti-money laundering rules only get tighter. But when you, when you talk about increasing regulation, I can see that. And in, in many ways, that sounds like a good idea. But that means that there is going to be eventually some kind of an ecosystem or industry here that is actually working because it's there's something there to regulate, or are you, or, or is there the possibility that it's sort of regulated out of existence, perhaps? No, that's a good question. Um, I think that it will be increasingly um, become just a trading commodity. Um, going to retail, the thing about touching retail is that um, so. Financial regulators just go, fine, you're doing things for money. Okay, don't be crooks, and that's fine. Go off and make a bundle, right? Regulators love you to go out and make money, except for um, FinCEN and the Financial Action Task Force. They're the cops, and they have no sense of humor, and they just want to douse the party. So um, (laughs) anything that touches retail, like Libra, DM, gets their attention immediately because that touches their voters. So it's, and 
you get sort of mediapathic depictions. Well, of you can get Mr. Zuckerberg in front of the committee, and there's always some good moments then. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's a good talker, but he is so unsympathetic as a character. I was actually struck by that looking at the um, Libra hearings in 2019. David Marcus is very sincere, very enthusiastic, and earnest about this project that he loves. Mark Zuckerberg was a much better talker. He's very measured. He's got a good talk, speaking voice. He Every sentence is clearly well thought out, but he sort of was glib and unconvincing because if you pay any attention to the substance of what he's saying, it doesn't hang together. And the um, politicians picked him to pieces. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think the politicians did better than in some of the previous Facebook hearings where the highlight was the the funny question from the very elderly uh, House member or senator, I think, which was... Senator, we sell ads. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, that's 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 fine, I suppose. Um, it's how they sell the ads that's a lot of the problem. Um, and, you know, I remain an enthusiastic Facebook user because, you know, the same reason everyone does. My friends are there. Right. Um, and we're all stuck at home. So... Um, but I think there are a number of problems in serious need of remedy. And um, there's current talk of breaking up Facebook, and that's probably a good idea because, you know, the synergies between the various Facebook properties are a bit forced. But um, that's one that's in process of being worked out right now, of course. Right. Well, David, we should probably let you get back to your proper job but thank you very much indeed for this and we'll we'll put a link to um libra shrugged as it is still called um in the show notes to this and as i say i really enjoyed it so thank you very much for talking to me if it, if it became a month later i could have called it carpe diem i mean yeah. <laughs> how dare they how dare they <laughs> thank you very much thanks david bye now Thanks very much to David Gerrard, our first crypto-sceptic on the podcast, but definitely not our last, I hope. Thanks very much for listening. Please join me again next week for another CoinGeek conversation. Till then, from me, Charles Miller, goodbye.